0: If you have never read about the 1904 Olympic Games in St. Louis, Missouri, I thoroughly recommend you do so. In particular, the marathon is worthy of your attention. A few things took place there which seem slightly out of keeping with our modern expectations. The first is that in 32 degree heat, there was only one water station for athletes to have a drink. The organiser wanted to conduct an experiment on the effects of dehydration, which, to be fair to him, he was successful in. But it's the first two athletes across the line who caught my interest. The first of them was a guy called Fred Laws, who started well, but after nine miles of the course, he dropped out. He got in a car and drove for the next 10 miles until the car broke down. And at that point, he got back out and started to run again, crossing the finish line in first place. He was later disqualified for having cheated. And in turn, the gold medal went to the second man across the line, a guy called Thomas Hicks, He was guilty of what we might consider a doping scandal today. He drank a blend of brandy and rat poison, which was intended to stimulate his nervous system. Needless to say, that wasn't a hugely successful strategy itself. Out of his mind and unable to walk, he was carried across the finishing line, having lost eight pounds in weight, and he almost died in the stadium. Now, why do I tell you about the 1904 Olympic Games? It's a fair question. The reason is that a marathon is not a bad thing to have in mind as we come to our Bible passage this lunchtime. We've been looking at the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. And as we come to the end of that story in chapter 8, we come to the span of the bulk of Gideon's life. He had his nighttime foray in idol smashing in chapter 6. He had his nighttime skirmish with the Midianites in chapter 7. And now in chapter 8, we see how he lived and how he led in the years that followed. And we'll see from his experience that life with God is a marathon, not a sprint. Our big theme for this series is spiritual warfare, and I suppose the message of today's passage is that we must be alert not just to winning the battles, but winning the war. There are no shortcuts in the Christian life, no car ride to take you 10 miles of the marathon route, If you try to cheat with the spiritual equivalent of brandy and rat poison, it will do you harm. And it will risk not just keeping you from finishing, but it will risk your life itself. Gideon, you see, was a man whose motivations and actions compromised him as he ran the race with the Lord. And we would do well to learn from his mistakes, but more so... We would do well today to learn of the Lord who bore with him and who carried him through. So two lessons for us today from Judges chapter 8 as we think about facing temptations and going the distance. The first is this. Your motivations must match your mission. And we're looking here at verses 1 to 21. This is the aftermath of the battle that we were looking at last week. If you remember, Gideon has gathered men from a few different tribes of Israel to go against the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other eastern peoples. And the Lord has whittled down his army until there were only 300 men to lead the attack. And without lifting their swords to begin with, the Lord had given them the victory the Midianites and others had turned on themselves and then turned and fled. Gideon then goes in pursuit. But at the end of chapter 7, we see him summoning the Israelite tribe of Ephraim to join the chase. And from verse 24 there, we learn this. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. So far, so good, you might think. But as we pick things up in chapter 8, these guys, the Ephraimites, are upset with Gideon. It seems as if their complaint is quite straightforward. They wanted in on the action. They see the glory of Gideon routing a huge army with a tiny band of men, and they are jealous for not having had a part of it. Here's chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Ephraimites ask Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? and they challenged him vigorously. This is important for us, because the whole point of the events of chapter 7, as we saw last week, was that the victory belonged to the Lord. You have too many men, the Lord had said to Gideon, and so sent him into battle quite explicitly with so small a force that Gideon couldn't possibly claim credit for the victory himself. It must be the Lord's work if they were to stand against so great an enemy. And the Ephraimites ought to step in at this point and say, praise the Lord for saving us from the enemy by his outstretched arm and his mighty hand. But instead they are resentful because they want a slice of the glory where the Lord has been at work in his sovereign power. We ought to check our motivations as we consider our mission here today. Christian believers are those who look to the Lord Jesus and the victory that he wins against sin and hell and death at the cross and in his resurrection. Christian believers are those who have the Holy Spirit in them, working in them and through them so they can live God's ways in the world God has made. But all too often, don't we find ourselves wanting a piece of the glory, as if to share it with the Lord himself? Don't we find ourselves trusting in our missionary strategies, or in the power of a particular preacher, or as we go to work, our skill in our professionalism, or our boldness in our personal evangelism? We can look to these things as our contribution to God's mission. Of course, we ought to go where the Lord leads us, and we ought to do what the Lord calls us to do. That is to work for the good of others in our actions and in our speech, but always, only, under our pursuit of the glory of God himself. Our mission is to make the Lord big to make him big in our lives through our own worship of him and our obedience to him and to make him big in the world as we work for him and as we speak of him our motivation for that mission ought to be his glory alone but often our motivations drift so they no longer match our mission we serve ourselves or We seek our own glory, which is where we started in chapter 6 with the exposing of our idols. Faced with this problem, Gideon makes the first of several missteps in our chapter today. The Ephraimites have challenged him vigorously over their exclusion from the battle. But instead of correcting their motivations and reminding them of their mission, he replies instead, with flattery. Here's verse 2. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Threatened by those dissenting voices, Gideon chose to flatter them and puff them up instead of confronting them about their error. And maybe it seemed prudent to him, but he fell into the same trap they had to attribute success on the battlefield to the strength of the soldiers rather than to the sovereign hand of the living God. Verses 4 to 21 give another account of motivations not matching the mission. Tired and hungry, desperate even, Gideon's 300 men are still in pursuit of two Midianite kings, and they arrive first at Succoth and then at Peniel, asking for some nourishment from the Israelites there before continuing the chase. In both those towns the people reply with a distinct lack of compassion and cooperation. They say, in effect, why should we give you sustenance before you've defeated these kings? If the Ephraimite complaint was that they had been excluded from the glory of the victory, the complaint here is that Gideon wanted the respect due the victor before he'd finished the job. We'll do something for you when you've done something for us, they seem to be saying. Now Gideon does get the job done. His exhausted 300 men put to death the final 15,000 troops from the eastern regions, meaning a total of 135,000 in all. He captures the two kings of Midian and then he returns to Succoth and Peniel. For what? I wonder, to say, I told you so, to boast in his might and power. No, he returns to those towns in order to seek revenge. Verse 16 here. He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. This is what you might call a teachable moment. We encounter those in life, don't we? Something goes wrong with our project at work and a manager or a colleague steps in to identify the issue. If that's happening in a healthy environment, the sum outcome is a positive one. We've identified a problem, we've been able to fix it, and we're in a better place to anticipate and prevent the same problem in the future. If that's happening in an unhealthy environment, though, the sum outcome is a negative one. We've identified a problem, we've apportioned blame, we've offered no forgiveness, and instead we're seeking vengeance against it, and we're holding grudges for it. Ultimately, this comes down to what kind of leader we ought to be looking to. Like so many other figures in the Bible, Gideon gives us a mixed picture of biblical leadership. He is obedient to God's call, at least in part. He does grow into the mighty warrior that he was labeled by the Lord. But he's flawed and compromised in his character, his motivations, do not always match his mission. He feels betrayed here, let down in his hour of need. And we can't help but think of the Lord Jesus in this moment, can we? Himself abandoned by his friends as they slept while he prayed in the garden, as they fled while he was arrested and tried and crucified. Taunted, disrespected, abused at the end, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Revenge, it turns out, has been a stronger motivation for Gideon, even though we've been told so far. In the closest thing, this chapter has to a plot twist. In verse 18, Gideon starts interrogating those two kings of Midian that he's captured. He hears from them, what we assume he already knows, that they have attacked and killed Gideon's own brothers. So uh, verse 19, uh, Gideon replies, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. But... They had not spared their lives. So he does. It's so murky, isn't it? so messy. This mission from the Lord is, is clear to banish idols and to banish the enemy so that he could be worshipped wholeheartedly. But even in that mission, both Gideon himself and the people that he led found themselves pursuing other motives jealousy, selfishness, revenge. Going the distance in faithfulness to the Lord is going to be a constant challenge. And ultimately, our failings and those of the people around us will need to drive us to the Lord himself if we are to make it to the finish line. Well, I I said we had two lessons to learn here Uh, That is the first and the biggest of them. But as we conclude our study of Gideon, here's a second and a final lesson, which really sums up the story as a whole. It is this, your actions must match your theology. Here, verses 22 to the end. As is so often the case where someone seems to have been successful, Gideon is showered with praise and is elevated in stature. Here is possibly the greatest temptation that one could face. At verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. In other words, the Israelites said to Gideon, become our king. If what we said two weeks ago in chapter 6 is true, then idolatry is the placing of other gods above or alongside the living God and worshipping them before him. And if that is the case, then the greatest idol we can face in our own lives is the idol of ourselves. Baal and Asherah in the time of the judges were gods of fertility. At least in sex and sensuality, we have those gods in our culture today. And the gods of power and mammon of, of money are all around us too. But perhaps the subtlest temptation and the most ensnaring is for the elevation of ourselves as an idol in our lives. Become a king. Become a queen. That is the oldest temptation. It goes right back to the snake in the garden. Don't listen to God and his rules. Make your own rules. Don't serve God by serving others. Serve yourself. And that is what we have been tempted to do ever since. Is it not? to take our relationships and our responsibilities and to twist them towards the advancement and the exaltation of our reputation and our stature. And if you're thinking, I know that's wrong, so did Gideon. And listen to him being very biblically sound in verse 23. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, Nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, full marks to Gideon on his biblical leadership theory exam. But listen out for verse 24. And he said, I do have one request. My friends, that is how it starts five simple words in English at least, I do have one request. When I was at university, I lived for a while in a college, a sort of halls of residence that had 550 people on site. And the community police officers would come quite routinely to warn us of the dangers of theft. The vast majority of thefts there came from people simply walking into unlocked rooms or reaching through open windows. And the police would wander around campus, leaving these big bookmark-style things, wherever they found some evidence of lax security. They were saying a thief would have stolen your stuff had they come here. They were reminding us to keep guard carefully. For a crime to take place, you need means, motive, and opportunity. And our enemy has the means. He has a grave motive that is to exploit our temptations, to cause us to sin. So we are unwise if we give him the opportunity. He just takes those few words. I do have one request. It just takes them once and the door is unlocked. The window is open and our vulnerability to sin is exposed. For Gideon here, the temptation comes to be recognized as king. He says, no, because the Lord alone ought to be king over Israel. His theology is right. But do his actions match his theology? Well, first, he asks for the lion's share of the plunder from the Midianites, as a king would. He's gifted an enormous treasure hall as a result. And second, he uses at least some of that gold and jewelry to fashion an ephod. That was meant to be a priestly garment worn by the priest in a time of crisis to seek the Lord's wisdom in a given situation. Gideon makes his own ephod to set himself up as a rival locus for worship, an object of discernment of the will of God. We've already seen his personal temptation around desiring signs from God when God has already spoken. Now he is leading Israel into that same temptation with himself at the centre of it. Verse 27 there, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And what of the lifestyle of a king? Here, verse 29 Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had seventy sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named. Abimelech. And what is lost in translation from the Hebrew is that the name Abimelech means my father is king. Riches, power, prestige, names. He may have rejected the title of king for himself, but if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. He was setting himself up as royalty. There was what we might call an integrity gap with Gideon. There was a gap between his theology and his actions. It is a gap that we would do well to keep close in our lives. Whether it is riches or power or prestige or jealousy or selfishness or revenge the temptation is all around us to chase idols and to make ourselves the idol in our lives it'll be a lifelong battle for us to expose and then to counter these temptations and sins in our lives but the story of Gideon is the story of the lord winning the battle on our behalf, even in the midst of our deepest weakness. Gideon, you know, for all of his failings, finds himself mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. There, the writer writes this, And what more shall I say, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And the writer there attributes even those acts of faith to the great saving act of God in history through his son. There's a reminder for us, as the race is still ongoing in this marathon of life by faith, that while there are no shortcuts, there is one who spurs us on by his spirit and who carries us across the finish line in the arms that were outstretched on the cross for our sake. So as I close here, let me leave you with a few words from a song to reflect on and perhaps to turn to prayer. It's a great old hymn. It goes like this. Hasten on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide thee there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission, swift shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope soon change to glad fruition, faith to sight and prayer to praise.